the pastoral team here. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. So if uh, you don't have a Bible this morning, just raise your hand, and one of the ushers will gladly let you use one of ours. And, and uh, you can either give it back or you can take it home if you want, if you know somebody who needs one. But just keep your hand raised. They'd love to give you one. Um, I want to handle a couple things of uh, uh, business uh, this morning. One is um, we have uh, a family, uh, the Rogelstads, there in Mexico right now uh, with uh, So Ministries. So is Larry and Esther Bosquet, Rebecca Forsman, and, and Blanca. And so we've got a team, I think it's uh, eight, a total of eight that's in Mexico right now with So Ministries. And so be praying for them. They uh, sent me some pictures this week that we'll post on our Instagram uh, here soon. And uh, just some great things happening, construction and serving some gals in need there. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is we support Robert and Molly Clements. Uh, Robert and Molly, they, um, they're missionaries that are now going back to Papua New Guinea. And they work with Wyclef, the Wyclef Center in Papua New Guinea. And in Papua New Guinea, uh, at that Wyclef Center, they send out Bible translators to translate uh, a lot of, well, first of all, what they do is they'll go to these tribes that don't even have um, their language in written form yet. So the first step they do is they go, they learn the language, and then they give them a, a, their written language for the first time. Then they give them a, tr- a Bible translated in their language, and uh, that's what Wycliffe does. So it's a pretty amazing deal. But what they do is they take missionaries from all over the world, Germany, uh, Europe, everywhere from Europe, Asia, America, and all these missionaries come with their family. Some of them have kids, a lot of kids. And what they'll do is while they do the Bible translation, while these families do Bible translation, the kids have to stay on the Wycliffe Center because they want to make sure that the kids get a good junior high or senior high education as well as getting discipled. And that's what Robert and Molly, they, that's what they do. They, they serve at the school there. So several years ago, Allie and I went to go be their retreat speakers in Papua New Guinea, which is a super uh, cool experience. And um, so they're moved, going back to uh, Papua New Guinea, and, and we support them, want to continue to support them. So I just wanted to make mention to you. We normally do a missions moment, so that's the missions moment real quick. And then um, a ministry moment. And the ministry moment uh, that I want to share with you this morning is this. We, uh, so last week was Easter. I don't know if you knew or not, but we celebrated Easter. And we had an interesting dynamic last week occur that, that uh, seemed a little different for us. And that is that we had more, more families and more people at the 830 service than we did at the 1030 service, and, um, which is really great. You know, the Lord's doing some good things. And one of the things that we've, we've discussed um, over the years is at the 1030 service, <clears throat> through faithful serving and all that, we've had a great children's church program. So several of you have parents, and your kids are taking advantage of that right now, and we're thankful for that. Well, we don't have that at the 830 service. And last week what happened was uh, several families were pretty distracted with their children, and they actually decided to leave the service at 830. And so it became clear to us at this time that what we needed to do is to be praying about adding a children's church program at the 830 service. So Joe and Abby are our children's directors, and I've, I've discussed with them. I said, here's the goal. Let's have a goal. At the very latest, let's try to launch by next year an 8.30 a.m. children's church service. So that's the goal uh, within a year's time to do that. Now, with that said, we've got a couple different dynamics um, that, that make that hard. One is we need more people to serve and, and to help out there. We can't just take the crew we have and expect them to double up on all their service. And so we're asking people to consider one of the ways that I've, I've heard it in churches before is serve one, attend one. And what that means is have an attitude of, of, of coming to a service 
and enjoying God's word, but maybe an attitude also of serving and helping out with kids. So uh, at the very least, what I want to ask you to do is to be praying for that. Uh, We don't want to do something that God doesn't want us to do, but it does seem appropriate that as this service, uh, we have some families that are gone um, this week. But if you notice, statistically what they say is that a service actually stops growing at about 80% full. So, so if your seats are 80% full, that's about the point where people will stop coming to service. So take a look around. Do we, are we about 80%, you think? Some of you are like, I don't know math, and I don't <laughs> want to say. We're, we're there. Um, but we're not necessarily at the 830. And so we're, we're, we're wondering if we can do that. Um, we would grow, and maybe some more families would come, and we can better serve each other and all of that for discipleship. So please be, would you please be praying for that for me? I, it, 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 for me personally, it, it breaks my heart to hear of a family who's coming and they're visiting, and they, they, they feel like they can't come um, because, because their kids are distracting or what have you. We want people to feel uh, that they have access to the gospel, that their kids are being discipled. And obviously, you know, we have, we have a family with four kids, and so I asked my wife about this just to see what she said. She said, I would love to be at the 830 service, but um, I can't sit in the service with all four of our kids. It's just way too difficult. And I can tell you for me, teaching, if she did that, it'd be way difficult for me as well. So I'd be hearing them back there, don't, we'd be like the dinner table thing all over again. <laughs> um, so uh, be praying for us uh, in that. Now, other thing I want to do is, is I want to ask Wayne to come on up. I had Sandy come up in the first service. Wayne, is Sandy able to make it or no? So she's serving the need at Children's Church. So she doesn't get to be up here, which means Wayne's not going to be as attractive as he would be if Sandy was standing next to him. I can find a proxy to yeah. in for. It won't work. Okay. She's the Mavis. only one. Mavis. <laughs> yeah. So this is Wayne. How many of you know Wayne? <laughs> Woo, yeah. So before the transition, one of the things we did when Wayne and Sandy weren't here, if you remember is uh, we made uh, an appeal that we wanted in the transition to bless Wayne after 41 years of ministry, to bless Wayne and Sandy with the ability to go on a trip, just the two of them, and to take a sabbatical time and, and, and to get out and just enjoy each other's company. And so one of the, the, the things that popped up was someone said, hey, listen, Wayne had mentioned wanting to go on this like rail tour uh, where, where you kind of tour around and you, you're on a train and everything. Well, what, Wayne looked at the, uh, how much that was going to cost. It was like $10,000 for like 10 days, eight days. $10,000 for eight days. So Wayne came back to me, and he said, we can't, we're not going to do that. It's just too short a time. And he asked for another $10,000. So, <clears throat> and I told him, no. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so what he decided, what he and Sandy decided to do instead of that is they were like, eight days, that's too short. We want more time than that. Um, they're going to travel uh, in, in, in a vehicle around the United States, and they've got their, their whole journey ahead of them for six weeks. So he basically was like 10 grand for six weeks or 10 grand for eight days. We'll take the six weeks over that. And so today is his official uh, start of a four-month sabbatical, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> so, so the training wheels are officially off for Jesse Richardson. So we, we want to... We want to, I brought him up here so we could pray for me. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, I brought him up here so we could pray for the church during that time, obviously, and because, you know, we'll, the staff will be filling in on his workload, 
and, uh, and to pray for he and Sandy, that it would be a beneficial time for them, and that the Lord would rejuvenate them and encourage them, and that he would have just the gusto to come back and continue to love on our church. And so uh, would you pray with me with Wayne and, and uh, be excited for him? So if you're wondering where's Wayne over the next six weeks, we, we haven't buried him somewhere uh, on the campus in the back. He's, well, he's enjoying his time. Several people talk to me. They don't know what a sabbatical is. And one person thought I was going away to a monastery for four months. <laughs> So a sabbatical is a time of rest. It basically, it's he and Sandy alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion. That's right. <laughs> Lord, we, uh, we just thank you so much for the faithfulness of Wayne and Sandy. Both of them, Lord, have been such an example of uh, a willingness to teach the Word of God to be teachable, to let, to even let go, and to show the church and the community that, that Lord, ministry is about you and not about one particular person. We pray in this time that you would allow them to connect in a way that is beautiful and special, that you would give them a new energy, a new found, uh, just fresh fire within them. And, and as we re- release them in their hands, Lord, we pray for travel safeties as well. Uh, and we pray, Lord, for the church, that we would continue to lean in on Jesus and lean in on the Word of God. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, man. All right. Um, Gospel of John, chapter 18. Um, If you would, please, if you're able to this morning, stand with me as we honor Scripture and and its reading. We're going to be in some more verses than what I just read. Uh, someone made note after the first service that they thought it would be helpful for you to know that there is information in the sermon that I'll be using that come from the other Gospels, uh, and so I think they just had a concern that uh, that I was may- that that maybe people would think I'm making things up, which I don't do that often. So you can, um, but we're in John 18, and we're going to read. Uh, I think I want to read the first 14 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If, if, I'm sorry, that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone said? 
Amen. Uh, you may be seated. Um, the title of the message this morning is Jesus was a volunteer. He wasn't a victim. I'm going to make a case this morning that you understand really the calmness of Jesus in this situation, what Jesus uh, was doing for his people, and that he understood what was happening in this moment. If you recall, Jesus has just spent several private, very intimate moments with his disciples. And he has washed their feet. He, he has spoken to them that the helper is going to come. He has loved on them. He, he's told them that that helper is going to empower them for, for ministry uh, later, that it's good that he goes because he can only be in one place, and yet the Spirit can be in all places. And, and then we see that, that during that time that Jesus was speaking to the disciples about God, and then we see the great high priestly prayer where Jesus now is speaking to God about the disciples, and now Jesus has removed himself to this place, the garden. And I want to paint this backdrop for us this morning so we can understand what is happening in this situation. Uh, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, backed up against the Mount of Olives. It was a, most likely a private garden owned by a wealthy family that that most likely allowed Jesus to use this garden for intimate moments with his disciples, for moments of discipleship, uh, for moments of prayer, a time for Jesus really to get away from the crowds and, and to get to a place where he could reconnect with his people and with his Father. They allowed Jesus to use this garden, and it was a place, uh, it was an, it was a place that, that the garden was an olive orchard. Uh, and it, we're told that this is, uh, there was a place where, uh, of crushing, that they crushed the olives within this garden. So Jesus is literally in the place of crushing. Now, olive oil is, uh, was used in Jesus' day uh, and valued in Jesus' day like gasoline. It was used for all sorts of different things, and they would crush the olives to produce the oil from it. So Jesus is in this very beautiful olive garden uh, owned by a wealthy family, a place of intimacy, a place that Scripture tells us he visited frequently. Judas knew of this place. Uh, in addition to this, we're told in verse 3, that walking into the garden, coming into the garden, uh, was a, a band of soldiers, a troop. Now, I want you to understand that, that this number, uh, through theologians, believe that it's as low as, the amount of soldiers here, it's as low as 200. There's at least 200 well-trained Roman soldiers walking into this garden, but it's as high as 1,000. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know if it's, it's a portion of, of the 1,000 or if it's a full 1,000, but what we do know is there's enough men there for there to be a captain, verse 12. So there's the hierarchy there. And the reason for this is because, uh, for several reasons, one is, if you remember, they said we can't take Jesus during the day, during the festival, during the Passover, because, uh, which is what they just celebrated, because if we take him during the Passover, it's likely that there, there'll be a revolt, there'll be a riot. And so these soldiers are here just in case of a riot, just in case Jesus is, is going to uh, maybe battle against these Roman soldiers. Which leads us to the idea here that they have within their hands, they have, uh, they have fire, they have torches, as well as weapons. But they have torches. And the reason for this is that they most likely believed that Jesus was going to run for the hills, that he was going to run into the mountains, that they were going to have to follow him or chase him. And so here they are in this private place wondering if there's going to be a revolt. Now what's interesting, though, is we're told that he's in the Kidron Valley where there's a brook, there's a river. Let's paint a little bit more of a background here. This is the same valley, the same brook that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Maybe you're familiar with the story. 
In 2 Samuel chapter uh, uh, 15, we see that David is actually betrayed by a very close friend, by a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's uh, trusted counselor, and he betrayed David. And when David was betrayed, he ran to the Kidron Valley. He ran into the same woods that Jesus is backed up against. Now, what's even more interesting about this, to relate 2 Samuel 15 to this passage, if you remember, after Ahithophel betrayed David, does anyone know what Ahithophel did? He killed himself. So we have David, who was betrayed by a close friend, and that close friend killed himself in the backdrop of the same place where Jesus is betrayed by a friend, and that friend Judas later will feel so guilty and so filled with shame that he too will kill himself. See, God is in control here in the situation. There's a reason he's backed up against the same woods, the same valley, the same river. But what's interesting about this brook What's really interesting about this brook is, is that the brook uh, actually flowed and followed all the way up to the Temple Mount. So during, the, temp- during the, the Passover in the temple, it's recorded 30 years later by a Jewish historian by the name of Jose- Josephus. Some of you are familiar with Josephus and, and you're aware of him. Many pastors will quote him because he's one of the most reliable uh, people you can use within Jesus' time period for exterior uh, history and resource. And what Josephus records is that what happened during the temple is that they would slaughter the lambs, right? Passover was the, was the season that the Jews celebrated to get the forgiveness of sins from their priest. And they would slaughter these lambs at the altar in, in hopes that their sin would be forgiven. And they would do this once a year. And what Josephus records is, 30 years later, is he says, at one particular Passover, in one day, 256 thousand lambs were slaughtered 256,000 lambs the reason that this is interesting is because as these lambs were basically crucified murdered slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins the blood would come down into the temple come come to a basin and underneath the temple it would flow and it would flow down into the brook kidron so here's jesus in the garden and it is said that it is most likely that as Jesus was in that garden, he would have stepped over that river, that brook, and it would have been blood red with the, the, the blood of the lambs. And as Jesus stepped over that garden, over that brook, he'd be looking at that blood that was incapable of taking away the sin of mankind. Jesus has painted this picture for us in this garden to to show us he is in control, but to to give us an idea of what he was dealing with. He is about to be murdered. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He is the better David. And he has come to forgive his people of his sins. And, And in this moment, there is such tranquility and calmness in Jesus. You see, he just, he says, who are you looking for? He walks up to them. In this place of betrayal, Jesus is volunteering himself for death. Jesus is, is in fact, keeping, keeping an appointed date from time past. He, he, he's keeping an appointment that he knows he has to meet. The hour has come. This is going to happen, and, and he's in charge of it. One quote here, if you read along with me, says, this prearranged signal in which Jesus, uh, Judas uh, kissed Jesus, by which he would point him out, nothing more clearly symbolizes the depravity of his heart and the depth of his sin that Judas is using a disciple's kiss as a traitor's sign. 
This kind of kiss was a sign of homage in that culture. Of the varieties of the kiss, feet, hand, head, hem of the garment. See, this was normal in their culture, right? If I, if I kiss you on the cheek on the way out, all of you, you'd think it's a little weird, right? So I, it's funny when I mention things from the pulpit, and I probably shouldn't say it now because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be punished for it later. Um, there's a couple people who kissed me on the way out, which I told them, that's a little weird. Don't do that. Don't kiss me on the way out. And there's only one, well, there's, we'll, we'll keep moving on. So, <laughs> of the varieties of the kiss, Judas chose the one that declared the deepest homage of love. The kiss on the cheek with an embrace was appropriate for an intimate friend. Thus, the treachery of Judas is the most despicable. But the Lord had no intention of hiding or fleeing. Instead, with majestic calmness, absolute self-control, and supreme courage, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth out of the garden and met those who came to arrest him. John's note that Jesus knew all things that were coming upon him emphasizes his complete mastery of the situation. The Lord's voluntary surrender stresses again that he willingly laid down his life. Jesus knew what was happening. There's a confidence to him here, but there's a humility as well. In fact, earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus says it like this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus has been predicting this throughout the entire gospel, that he, he is going to lay his life down, and that it's going to happen, and that nobody is doing this because he's a victim. He's doing it because he's volunteering for it. Later, and take note of this, if you're taking notes, just write down uh, Acts chapter 2 next to po quite possibly probably verse 19. We'll come back to it in a moment. But Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, saying this, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says this was the plan all along. This is the foreknowledge of God is involved in this. And then later again in John 12, Jesus speaking of his death, he says, my, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, he says, I've come to this hour. For this purpose, I've come. Notice the calmness of Jesus. And then there's the contrast. What I love, absolutely love, about John is the way it contrasts light and dark, the beautiful and the ugly. It is just, it is so artistic. And here we have another contrast. We have the calmness of Jesus contrasted with the emotional instability of Peter. Verse 10, Jesus approaches himself willingly. Peter says, no, -uh, not in my house, not in my garden. And Peter pulls out a sword, and he hacks off the ear of a servant, Malchus. First of all, we're not even sure Peter's supposed to have a sword. <laughs> Secondly, just so we're all clear, Peter was not aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his neck, and he missed. And what's interesting about the calmness of Jesus, and, and this is we, we learn this from the other Gospels, is that when the ear falls off, Jesus recreates the ear and puts the ear back on the servant. And he tells Peter, put your sword away. For this hour I've come to drink this cup. And the cup is the cup of God's wrath and anger against sin. Now let's, let's be clear on this, okay? Had Jesus not healed 
Malchus's ear, there would have been four crosses on Golgotha, not three. Jesus in this moment is sparing the life of Peter. What Peter has done is treachery. What Peter has done is violence against a high governing authority. It's worthy of death. It's worthy of death on the cross. And because of Jesus' grace in the moment, because of his grace in the moment, Peter's saved. Have you ever just taken a moment to realize that in the chaos of your life, Jesus is never taken back, and he's never surprised, and he's never shocked. He's always in control. And in this moment, one of the most humble moments, one of the most hardest moments of Jesus' life, we also see the great power of Jesus. As they approach him and he invokes the name Yahweh, the ego ami, the I am. This picture here is taken from, um, uh, I mentioned it on my uh, Instagram the other day. It's taken from a, uh, a ministry called the Bible Project. And they do phenomenal, beautiful stuff. We've used some of it in, children's, in the children's program. Um, our staff watch some of these videos. Our community group has watched. They do some amazing videos. And, and what, this, what this chart shows you is the times that, that, that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, has invoked this name, the, the ego ami. It's, it's being pulled from, the, the name is being pulled from the story of Moses. When Moses is to go to the Pharaoh and release God's people from slavery, and, and Moses, in his stuttering speech, says, says well, well who, 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 what, who do I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am, Yahweh. Tell them, the great I am, I am that I am, has sent you. Every time that Jesus has spoken this word, he, he's letting the people know, I am God. And you can see, he says, I'm the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate of the sheep. This is all in John, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the vine. And then seven other times, he just invokes the name, I am. Again, Yahweh, I am, I'm God. And then it ties in with seven signs in the Gospel of John. I don't know if you've been keeping track, but, but we've got the water into wine. That's the first sign, the healing of a sick boy, the healing of a paralyzed man, the feeding of the 5,000, the blind man being healed, raising Lazarus from the dead, and the seventh sign, the accumulation, is the one we celebrated last week. Jesus comes back from the dead. So I want you to see that all of these I am's, this is the pinnacle of the I am statement. He's in essence taking all of these I am's from chapter 6 to chapter 15, now in chapter 18, boom, I am. And what happens to the maybe 200 soldiers as high as 1,000? They all fall down. Now, some people have tried to explain this away. One theory of explaining this away is that, yeah, the men fell down, but what it was was Jesus actually just startled the group of men coming out of the darkness, and, and the first row fell back into the second row, and then all of these men just happened to fall backward. These are well-trained Roman soldiers. They're ready for a riot. They probably would have spread themselves out. No, 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 this is, this is God speaking God words in a holy moment. And they fall backward. Now, I've got to take a few moments because of the season of this to just, just make mention of the importance of Jesus being God. Last Sunday, or not last Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, there was a gentleman that I, I kind of know him, but I really know his friend. And he was sitting in church a couple Sundays ago at the 830 service. And pretty early on in my message, like minutes, he became visibly and uh, audibly 
just distraught with something I was saying. I could tell I had said something he didn't agree with and didn't appreciate. And he got up and he walked out. And I didn't know what it was about, and the lady he was with, she followed him. Had no idea what it was about. Until last Thursday when we were heading to community group, I pulled into 7-Eleven. And uh, both these gentlemen happened to work at 7-Eleven. And the guy who's his buddy, as I was getting in line to, to pay for what I needed, uh, he, he said, I said, hey, how you doing, man? Oh, good to see you again. And, and I'm buying my stuff, and there's a lady over here because the line's long at this point. You know, at 7-Eleven, they open up both lines when it's busy. I've got a line of people behind me. And, and I'm speaking with him, buying my stuff, and asking him how he's doing. And I've got another gal here who I don't know. And all of a sudden, this gentleman who I know, he asked me, he says, uh, oh, I, I, can I ask you a question real quick? I said, sure. He goes, uh, what's the church's stance on Jesus uh, uh, being God? Does, does, does Sierra Bible Church believe Jesus is God? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, uh, I don't get that. I don't get it. We're going to have to talk about that sometime. And here I am. I'm thinking, well, there's a line of people here. and well, you know, What do I do? Well, I'm going to turn it into a church service. So I began to preach. And I told him, I said, well, you got to go look at John 1. John 1 says the Word was with God, and, and the, word be, uh, the Word was God, and then the Word later became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And, and he's like, okay, i got to read John 1. And I'm sitting here going, this is, this is starting to get a little awkward as I begin to tell him about the Bible because there's people who clearly want to buy their lottery tickets and their cigarettes and don't want to hear a sermon. And this other lady standing next to me over here, she goes, are you talking about the Trinity? And, and he goes, yeah. And she goes, ooh. And I know <laughs> this is not only a church service, it's becoming an interactive church service. And so I said to him, I said, you know, man, you know that only God can forgive sin. And he, and he was on board with that. He knew that. And I said, well, you understand that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. If Jesus isn't God, then your sins are not forgiven and you're still in your sins. And he kind of went, and she went, oh, that's good. <laughs> I kept thinking in my mind, like, I had to leave, you know, but I kept thinking, like, well, where, where do you go to church? <laughs> you know, at some point, I have a conversation with him. I have a conversation with her. Where, what's happening at this moment? And so as we were, were having this conversation, I said, read John 1. You've got to go back to it. He goes, okay, I'll read John 1. And we went about our way. Now, that moment for me was a definitely a Holy Spirit moment that, that God gave me the right words at the right time and and. and and it wasn't too awkward, and it wasn't too unfitting. It was, it was just right. But let us be clear as a church. The I am. Jesus is indeed God. Jesus says, he says, if you've, if you've seen me, he has said it in John several times, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, wouldn't it be weird if I said, if you've seen me, you've seen my dad, Dave Richardson. We're the same guy. We're not the same guy. We're totally different human beings. I said, if you've seen me, you've seen Pastor Wayne. No, you all know we're different, different people. So when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's making it really, really clear. I am the visible, physical manifestation. See, the guy at the counter, he actually said as we were speaking, he said, but no one has seen God and lived. Ah, that's why Jesus came. So you can see God, and God can take on your unrighteousness, give you his holiness, so you can stand and know and see who God is. Jesus is our way to know God. Know Jesus, know God. This is the climax of, this, of, of these statements. And, and in this moment, I want, you to, I want you to see something that I think is very hopeful for us. Number one, in the moment that Judas is betraying Jesus, that Judas's sin has no power over Jesus. Amen? 
Judas's betrayal has no power over Jesus. And let's just be clear about this for us this morning as well. Your denial, your sin, and your shame have no power over our God. They don't dictate to him whether he's going to love you or accept you or care for you. See, salvation is not dictated on man's actions. It's dictated upon what Jesus has done. So the good news here is our sin, our betrayal, Judas's betrayal has no power over Jesus. But it also shows us the great power of God's words. That when God speaks, things happen, right? I mean, this, this is, in a way, as John starts out very beautifully. Again, this is the beauty of John the, is what the Bible project calls the Bible being literary genius. I love that term. The Bible is literary genius. And if you remember in the beginning of the Gospel of John, John actually takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, doesn't he? And he says, in the beginning. It's the same language. He, he knows what he's doing. He's taking us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning. And in the beginning in Genesis 1, if you remember, we see God speaking. Right? This is our introduction to God for the first time, to Yahweh, the, the Holy One. And he's speaking, and he says, let there be light. And there was light. He says, let there be expanse, space, waters. And, and so that happens. Genesis 1.9, God said, let the waters and the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. Genesis 1.11, God speaks and says, let the earth sprout vegetation. And sure enough, there's vegetation. At another point in, in Genesis, God says, let there be lights. And, and so there were stars in the heavens. And then in Genesis 1.20, he says, let the waters so warm with living things. Do you think of the knowledge? you think about that? 6,000 years ago, if we're taking it literally or so, whatever, whatever those dates may be, that for the author of Genesis to know that the waters were so warming with living things. I can't remember the statistics. I'll butcher it. But I'm, it, there's a huge amount of animals, they say, are not yet discovered in the ocean. Something like 80% or something more. Maybe even bigger than that. I can't remember. Basically, they've said there's a lot of animals in there, and we've never even plumbed the depths. Right? As one great theologian said, man, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like an ocean. It's shallow enough that a young child can play within its pools, but it's deep enough that no man could ever fully plumb its depths. Right? Literary genius, that, that's the word of God, and he speaks. He, at one point he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and so it was so. And then God speaks in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and he speaks man into existence, made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. He speaks can you just take note for a few moments of the radicalness of what we've just seen? Jesus invoking God's name, men 200 plus falling down, Peter's wildness cutting off the ear of Malchus only for Jesus, it tells us in the other Gospels, to heal that ear. And yet, these men still arrest Jesus and move forward with the betrayal. You know, this teaches us, this teaches us that sin hardens the heart, doesn't it? Sin hardens the heart. We're falling in a relationship with Jesus softens the heart. We, we had a, a guy this morning came up to me, and, and he caught me off guard a little bit. He said, uh, I've had a heart transplant. Well, oh, when? You know, and I was thinking physically, right? And then I went, oh, you're talking about the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, aren't you? And he's like, yeah. Christians are so weird sometimes. <laughs> and... But, but th this is the truth of what he's saying. Unless the heart of stone becomes reawakened and recreated by the Spirit of God, then, then the, the, the mind and the heart, they can't see. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 teaches us. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ, that's what it says here because it ties in with the ego a me statement. The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. And then Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God, which is the cup that Jesus says he's going to drink, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you want to know how you know if you're in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? It's really simple. You want more truth, even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. You're willing to sit under the teaching and the preaching and the reading and the praying of God's word. You know, when you start thinking, I can't stand when that pastor says things like this. It's the hardening of the heart. I don't like it when we go to that particular passage, or I don't like it when I read that particular verse. I don't like being around people of prayer. Oh, it's the hardening of the heart. You want to suppress the truth. Nobody likes being told they're wrong, do they? Right? I know that from my kids. I mean, at four years old, it's really apparent that my kids don't like being told they're wrong. Our, our oldest at times actually explains everything away. He's seven years old. He's already a lawyer. He knows how to justify himself. He justifies all his actions. And, and the next thing you know, he even brings in other witnesses. Well, Jonah saw. Oh, because he's a trustworthy witness. The, the, the heart doesn't want truth. And, and, and the reality, just so you know, the reality is the same for us. It can be hard to sit under a Bible-teaching pastor. Because the Bible-preaching pastor will say things without apology, and it can feel obtuse, and it can feel mean. But it's for the love of God. And you can see, you'll see here in a moment, though Jesus surrenders himself, he never stops sharing the truth. So in this moment, this most powerful moment, is also one of Jesus' most humble. We see in verse 12, he then is bound just like a lamb would be for sacrifice. Jesus is bound, and then Jesus goes through six different trials. Three religious trials and three civic trials. The first one, he goes before Annas. Annas was the previous high priest. So he wasn't the high priest at the time, but he still carries the name high priest, much like the past president of the United States. He's still called president. So he's taken before Annas, and you know what Annas was in charge of? He was in charge of all the business in the temple. He was in charge of the money of the temple. You know, that place that Jesus overturned and chucked all the money around. And So he's taken before a man that Jesus has literally hurt the pocketbooks of. So he goes before Annas, and then Annas is related to Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. Then Jesus goes before Caiaphas, and then after that we're told, not in this particular passage, but later we're told that he goes before the governing body, the Sanhedrin. And once he's gone through that, because he's basically been declared guilty within these religious trials, but because the Jews don't have the power to to kill somebody, to crucify somebody, they have to take Jesus before the civic stuff, before the Roman council, before the Roman authority. So so they first take him to Pilate, and Pontius Pilate basically doesn't want to have anything to do with him, so he sends him to Herod. Herod doesn't want to have anything to do with him, so Herod sends him back to Pilate, and then Pilate eventually renders the verdict. He's taken before six 
different trials dragged back and forth. And, and just so you know, just so you know, much of this, much of this is completely illegal. The early morning trial was illegal, and the high priest is not allowed to directly question the defendant. And for those of you who know law, the judge does not ask the questions, does he? And back to that point where Jesus shares the truth. Look at verse 19 of chapter 18. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered, here's the truth. Jesus knows that he needs, that Jesus deserves to have witnesses. So even though Jesus is volunteering himself, he's still not letting these guys know that what they're doing is legally wrong. It's illegal. Jesus says to them, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those. Where are my witnesses? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand and saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus is letting him know, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. It's not okay. And yet they still move forward. And so Jesus is brought back and forth. But again, John, John loves contrast. Light and dark. We see the calmness of Jesus. He's, he's under trial. He's gone through six different trials. He's been dragged back and forth. He's been questioned. He's even been slapped, punched at the, at the very least in this moment. But there's another trial. There's another trial going on that, that John is contrasting with, and it's the trial of Peter. Peter's under trial as well. Look at the trial of Peter, verse 15. Chapter 18, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus out of the garden after his arrest, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Take note, he's warming himself. Then again, we come back to Peter after Jesus' trial. John has purposely interwoven the contrast of these trials, and look at Peter's trial again in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. I'm sorry, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. John makes it the note of that twice. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? This is number two. He denied it. I'm not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. She's related to this guy. This is like drama unfolding. This is reality TV here. He goes on and she says, listen to what she says. She was there in the garden. She was following. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Imagine, she's like, I, I, I know I've seen this guy. He did something radical in the garden. Peter again denied it. Third time, the rooster crows. You see the, you see the contrast? Peter's under trial, not even a real trial, and he denies the Lord. Jesus is on trial, and he stands firm. 
to be who he is. The contrast is this. Peter is faithless. Jesus is faithful. Peter is a coward here. Jesus is courageous. In one moment, he's ready to fight, and the next he runs. Peter in this moment is preserving himself with lies. Jesus is sacrificially giving himself up with love. There's a beautiful contrast here. I think what we learn from this to some degree is the reality that that we're not going to be the faithful one. We're not going to be the courageous one. We're not going to be the one who preserves uh, who sacrifices ourselves. We're going to want to preserve ourselves. And it's the goodness of Jesus Christ that saves a person here. And Peter sometimes gets a bad rap. Like, oh my gosh, he denied Jesus three times. Where's the other disciples? They've scattered. We're not going to find the other disciples later uh, until later in the Gospel of John. And what they've done later in the Gospel of John, if you remember, is they've gone back to fishing. Jesus saved them from fishing and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus is arrested and crucified, and later we'll find the disciples are back fishing. They don't know what to do. They just go back to the world. But Peter's still in the courtyard. And the pressures, the pressures of the world come in on Peter, and he collapses. Now, we're going to visit Peter here in a moment in just a few moments, but there's another contrast. It's not just the contrast of the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter. It's also the contrast that John alluded to in John 1 that contrasts back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, beginning of Genesis. Jesus has been arrested in this garden. See, let's look at it this way. Life originally began in a garden, did it not? The Garden of Eden. Eternal life begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, we lost our way. Adam disobeyed God's will. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus finds our way and obeys the will of God. In the first garden, if you remember, Adam hid himself from God. But in this garden, Jesus openly prays transparent, not my will be done, but your will be done. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, Man was driven out because of sin, and in this garden, Jesus prepares to die for sin. In the first garden, man, if you remember, the the Garden of Eden is closed off with a sword that we would never enter into the Garden of Eden again. But in this garden, Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away. Everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden is reclaimed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you think... For any moment that this is accidental, that, that this, is, this just so, somehow kind of ended up happening, no, this is, this is God showing us that in this moment of death, in this moment of sacrifice, he is in complete control. And the Garden of Gethsemane reminds us of the fresh start that we get in Jesus Christ. As I shared last week at Easter, everybody desires a resurrection. All of our problems are somehow tied to a resurrection. I can think of all the stories in my own life. I just go, man, if I, if I could just go back to that moment and, and redo it again, if I could just redo it again, if I could just redo it again. Have you ever noticed that any good movie, movie any good story, uh, kind of falls in the same, same line of it was beautiful and then it becomes broken and the hero falls only for the hero to be resurrected and for him to take over and do awesome all over again. So J.R. Tolkien says that every good story somehow echoes the gospel. That mankind ultimately wants 
and, and desires and needs for the hero to be resurrected, for the hero to bring a, a, a new day. For, 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 there's something in our hearts that says we know we're crushed. We know we've been crushed in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and our sin is just pressing down upon us. And we want resurrection. And Jesus offers it. Which leads me into the understanding of the renewal of Jesus. Remember I told you to make note of the fact that Peter was warming himself at the fire. There's three phases of Peter's life. And there, I think there's, there's, to a degree, there's, there's three phases to every Christian's life. The first phase is Peter is at the fire. He's at the fire. And he's warming himself. In your brokenness, have you not fallen into that same trap? To comfort yourself with the ways of the world? To comfort yourself the way that everybody else tries to do? Has anyone ever done that? Escapism, we've talked about it before on Sundays. And I've shared, I have a close friend that has admitted that whenever things get hard, they just buy a new pair of shoes. Because that fixes depression, you know? I, I feel in my heart every now and then, I'll be like, oh man, I'm kind of lonely today. Maybe I'll look at Amazon.com and see what I can buy. But I've got a low budget, you know? So I end up getting like some vitamins or something. I'm off to a fresh start. We find ourselves, even as Christians, to cope with our stuff. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't look down on anybody who does that because I'm just as guilty of it. But as I mentioned to you, somewhat joking but somewhat serious, standing in the line of 7-Eleven and, and seeing people, I, you know, I, I go in there quite often. You know, I get sunflower seeds and things like that there, you know, but for the most part, if you watch the kind of people that walk into 7-Eleven, even early in the morning, cigarettes, alcohol, lotto tickets. You know why they want to win the lotto? Resurrection. If I get this lotto, I'll be born again from the grave. No, you won't. You'll still be just as depressed. In fact, you'll probably become more depressed, more angry, more frustrated, more guarded, more isolated. Those people need resurrection. They're trying to comfort themselves with the ways of the world. And we know that those ways don't, don't fix anything, no matter what they are. It doesn't fix it. The only one who can fix it is Jesus Christ. Several years ago, we had a string of suicides in our community. And Brad Noel and I, and I think John attended at the time, it's been a few years, but the school put on all these seminars. The district put on all these seminars and how to deal with children, how to deal with people who, who want to kill themselves, who want to take their own lives. And, and here's basically what I took away from the seminar. Kids want to kill themselves at an alarming rate. And, and here's what we're doing to fix it. And the statistics keep getting worse. You know what I heard? We're, we're trying to fix the problem, but the problem keeps getting worse. So here's all the things you should do. Which in essence, they were basically telling me, you can do all these things. It's not going to fix the problem. And of course, I'm back there as a pastor sitting in the meeting going, it's because you're not getting to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the heart. These kids aren't connected to their creator. They need a relationship with God. They need to know that they've been made in the image of God. In the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what Jesus says. You are made in my image. I try to tell my kids all the time, you're not made to be just like dad. You're not made to be just like mom. You're made to be like God. You're valuable to him. Why am I valuable? Because you were made in his image. They're valuable. Kids need to know their worth and value, not to society, not to their peers and their friends, not to social media, but to Jesus Christ alone. 
We comfort ourselves with the fire. We try to fix our problems, and it doesn't work. And then, and then what happens is the next step, he's not at the fire, he's under fire. Do you know Jesus? And under the pressure, he breaks, and he denies the Lord. He doesn't share that, that, that he is in a relationship with this man. He doesn't share that he's walked with this man for three years, that he's seen this man for three years. He, he doesn't share the fact that at one point in time, he stood in front of Jesus, and he looked his creator in the eye, and he said, surely I will go with you to the grave if it means that if it means that. Imagine the crushing guilt when Peter hears the crowing of the rooster that he deals with. The blow of shame he must have felt. Peter's under fire. Remember I told you not only to make mark of the warming of the fire, but I also said early on, make note of Acts chapter 2 because it's the next phase of of Peter's life with Christ we find Peter is on fire. He's warming himself by the fire of the world. He comes under the fire of the world and he caves. And then the newness and the fresh beginning of Jesus Christ, he takes Peter after his resurrection, if you remember, and he says, Peter, hey, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, I love you. And and there's this interesting dialogue we don't have time to go into, but essentially what Jesus says, feed my sheep. Be a leader in my church. Lead people to Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel and thousands of people come to the Lord. You know, that is the hope for us as we, as we desire to, to follow Jesus is, is to become bold about sharing the gospel with Jesus, to, to encourage people to know who Jesus is. And, and, and to some degree, you almost have to be careful, right? Like, like you don't want to run around and tell people you're a Christian because that puts you in a box, doesn't it? One thing I've learned about evangelism over the years, if you tell people you're a Christian, the first thing they ask you in our society, well, what do you think about homosexuality? They don't want to talk about the cross. They don't want to talk about the fact that Jesus is God. They want to know your political and social standing on something. So I've found it's, it's not always important to say that I'm a Christian. That might be offensive to some of you. Go for it. Tell them you're a Christian. I just tell people, I follow Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me share with you what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Remember John 1, he says, I'm the life of men. I'm the light of the world. I have the ability to give you life and life abundantly. I have the ability to give you a life worth of meaning. I have the ability to work through your depression. I have the ability to give you a new day and a fresh start because this life for every single one of us in the room, this is the truth that nobody likes to hear. You're all going to die, people. Every single one of you is going to have a memorial service of some kind. And either the pastor will stand up here and say, well, they're gone. Or the pastor's going to say, well, we know who they're dining with. They're dining with the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ. Revelation 20, 21. Praise God for his new beginning. May we not warm ourselves with the fire of the world, but may we be on fire for Jesus Christ. And you know, it's been funny because God will call you on stuff. The last few weeks, I told you, I've been making a call for us as a church to, to share the gospel. And I'm praying for moments for you. What I know is over the, ever since I've started preaching it, lots of moments have been opening up for me. When was the last time you had a church service at 7-Eleven? Whew. I'm praying for more of those in a way that doesn't come off weird. But everybody's okay with it. Like They don't agree with it, but they don't. And chances are for some of them, because of the hardness of their heart, 
They'll buy their alcohol. They'll buy their cigarettes and their lotto tickets. And they won't know the love of God. But may it never be on us that we missed an opportunity to share that someone can be reconciled with the creator of the universe. Yeah? I want more people to know him. I want more people to experience his healing. To be able to stand in the garden with Jesus again, totally transparent and free, fully known and still fully loved. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as Psalm chapter 2, verse 11 reads, May we serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. May we kiss the sun and find refuge, refuge in you and be blessed. I pray for us as a church that we would run to you, Lord, and find our identity from you, Lord, and that we would be empowered and on fire for you, God, because you've made all things new, starting in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you have the ability, Lord, to give us what we all really need? And that is a heart transplant. We trust you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment while I... <laughs>